Welcome to The Tasty Solution on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. This is a show where we use diverse coastal case studies to prove a very simple concept, that culinary tourism can save the world. Luckily for us, we have a number of solutions to choose from, so we thought we'd go big and investigate global challenges like invasive species removal, biodiversity extinction, climate change, international conflict, social impact, cultural preservation, and whatever else the world throws our way. Come with us as we travel around the world and speak with diverse experts fusing sustainable food tourism and responsible destination management. Bringing this rich and often delicious content to you is the Culinary Tourism and Destination Management Dream Team, Jane Connolly and Erica Sears. Hey, Erica Sears here, destination management aficionado and social steward. I support coastal ecosystems, cultural heritage, and local identities by aligning community priorities with tourism opportunities, while also encouraging moonshot goals and out-of-the-box thinking from the tourism industry. And hey everyone, Jane Connolly here, culinary tourism activator and all-around bon vivant. I strive to preserve and promote local foodways and culinary heritage through the development of community-based tourism and to open people's eyes to the wonders of the world's gastronomy while observing and preserving culture, customs, and the planet. So I'm so excited today, Jane, because we have this, I would say, unusual topic. We're talking about a product, a food product. Um, Some call it the new kale. It can taste like bacon if cooked properly, and it's the fastest growing protein source in the world. What comes to your mind when you hear those little hints? Hmm, let me think. Bacon and kale. Honestly, I don't know if I would ever put those two things in the same sentence together. So I'm not really sure. What are we exploring today? (laughs) You will after this interview. Um, Today we're exploring a carbon negative seaweed called dulse. Ah, seaweed. Huh. Interesting. I can't wait to find out more. Where are we going to learn about seaweed? Well, the best destination on earth. We are going to the Oregon coast. We're coming home to where I'm at. Um, as as you may know, um, to our listeners out there, I am from the Oregon coast and I work for the Oregon Coast Visitors Association, the tourism organization for the entire Oregon coast. So there's nothing I am more passionate about than talking about the Oregon coast and cool projects going on here. Um, so yeah, we're coming on home. And Jane, I know you are from the Pacific Northwest. Have you have you ever been to the Oregon coast? I have. Yeah, when I was growing up, I mean, we did the the uh, the common trips out to Cannon Beach, and I also studied in Eugene, Oregon. So of course, I spent time in in Newport and and Florence area as well. It's beautiful, absolutely stunning area. Yeah, yeah, it is incredible. Um, and I think we're actually going to Garibaldi. We'll find out here in a minute, um, which is south of Cannon Beach, but north of Newport. So um, maybe this will be a new destination for you. And um, we are meeting with Alana Kiefer. She is a farmer and does the sales for Oregon seaweed, um, which is so cool. Like that title, a seaweed farmer, that's legit. There's not a lot of those out there, I think. Um, So we'll find out more about that. And Jane, according to Oregon Seaweed's website, what is the problem that we are looking at today? They declare their problem as future world food demand requires new business models that satisfy this demand while protecting the fixed natural resources that exist. Soil-based seed technologies cannot produce the amount of products required to sustain human existence and are detrimental to the long-term health of the planet. Wow, so we are talking about the existence of our species and the health of our planet. Uh, Nice light topic for all of our listeners out there. Um, And we're going to explore the solution, which is really the focus of the show, right? We don't want to just dwell on the challenges and problems that we're facing. Instead, we are here to talk about these tasty solutions. So Oregon Dulce has developed macroalgae farming technologies that are an efficient alternative to legacy soil-based seed products. 
They are producing scalable amounts of this macroalgae that can be produced economically into high demand products and ingredients that have a positive environmental impact. Um, so welcome to the show, Alana. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So let's get to know um, let's get to know the Oregon coast a little bit um, through your eyes and your experience. Uh, how would you describe the Oregon coast to someone who hasn't been here before? Well, just like the two of you have said, the Oregon coast is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful places in the world. We have an extremely rich environment, which I believe is fueled by the massive amounts of rain that we get. I think it's somewhere close to about 100 inches annually. Um, It's really green. It's really mountainous. We have a super rocky coastline. And between each town, you know, there's these little headlands that you get and it creates these microclimates from town to town. So even in the summer, it's hard to know, you know, what you need to wear to go out in a day. It might be sweater weather one minute and you turn a corner and it's 80 degrees and sunny and you don't need your sweater anymore. So I feel like I have to wear five different outfits when I go out in a day, just to know, because you have no idea what it's going to be like. Um, you know, when people are like, have you been living out of your car? They like look at my, <laughs> my tinted windows, my I add, and I have like rain jackets. I've got Chacos, but I also have hiking boots, rain, you know, <laughs> yeah. like you, like, you just like, you just started gathering it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. And, and the Oregon coast is um, 363 miles of public coastline. So there's no private beaches. It's the people's coast. But where exactly on the coast are you and where exactly is um, Oregon seaweed located on the coastline? So I personally am located in Seaside, Oregon. This is actually the town I went to high school in and throughout you know years of college and traveling for work. This is my home base. It's where my mom lives. Um, Oregon seaweed is based down in Garibaldi, so just about an hour south of Seaside, but all, you know, north coast, northern Oregon coast is where I've been based the past nine years. That's really interesting. Those are two totally opposite towns on the coast, Um, right? Like Seaside is considered a very tourist destination. There's a lot of, you know, there's candy shops and a movie theater and there's a promenade that you can walk along and Garibaldi. I mean, can you describe Garibaldi a little bit? (laughs) Yeah, Garibaldi to me is this really like salty old time fish town, you know, it's a port town. So um, there's not a lot going on there that I've discovered in terms of like social life. Um, But there's a lot of fishermen. There's a lot of different things that are, I think, starting to happen in Garibaldi, like with all the fishermen, with... um, just coastal fisheries in general. So it's definitely alive. There's a lot going on in Garibaldi, but a completely different vibe than Seaside, as you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some big energy there. There's a giant G on the hill, like Hollywood energy. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I agree, it is so it is salty, and you definitely know that you're in a fishing town when you're there. Um. So what do tourists, in your opinion, what do they usually do when they're visiting, you know, Garibaldi, for example? Um, I think, you know, Garibaldi itself, just because it is that port town, I think a lot of what people enjoy doing is just walking along the port of Garibaldi. You can see the docks, you can see all the fish boats, um, and there's a lot of canneries and different stores where you can just go buy fresh fish right off the docks. So Garibaldi itself has that like history and coastal fisheries vibe to me, but along the whole Oregon coast, I mean, it's, there's countless things that you can do. I think a lot of, there's just a ton of hiking around here, a lot of surfing, a lot of fishing, um, a lot of history on the Oregon coast in general. And, you know, I... (laughs) Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, It's not so much your like swimming beach. I don't think of Oregon as this warm coastal coast where people go to like jump in the ocean and just go for a quick swim. So it definitely has that like colder, colder weather, um, hiking. Yeah. And, you know, I know Jane is dying to start asking you about the food scene. But one more question, which is a big question, um, but I'm not a small talk kind of person, is I'm just imagining your commute, right, going from Seaside to Garibaldi every day, 
every day, maybe for work. Um, so you're covering quite a bit of ground there. And I am just curious, in your opinion, um, do you think that the Oregon coast is already seeing the impacts of climate change? You know, I do. And I think in a lot of ways, this is like really obvious to everybody who's here and everybody who's not here because it has come up on the news everywhere at this point. But to touch on the obvious one, I mean, just in the past few years, our fire seasons have gotten a lot worse. They've lasted a lot longer. Um, Last year, just in 2020, we had severe droughts, extreme winds that fueled a lot of fires and burned over a million acres of Oregon. Um, 2021 summer, so just this past summer, we had heat, a heat dome that swept the PNW and it left pine trees like pretty scorched and brown. So even now that the rain has come back, you drive around and you see a lot of brown pine trees, which I have never seen in my nine years here. So it's, you know, a little worrisome. Um, and then things that are, I think, less obvious to people that aren't directly involved with it, but scientists have noticed that acidification on the Oregon coast is actually happening at a faster rate than they ever predicted. I know just in like 2012, so right around when I moved here, there was a shellfish farm in Neetart, so pretty close to where our Garibaldi farm is, that had a mass die-off of all their oyster larvae, and it was eventually directly linked to ocean acidification, um, which is, you know, an effect of climate change. So, There are a lot of ways that we're directly seeing it. And I think there's probably a lot more that we don't even know about quite yet, but there are definitely some changes occurring. Yeah, I think thanks for thanks for filling all that in. I think it's really important. You know, that's something that we're doing within my organization is it's really fun to talk about the Oregon coast and all the things that visitors can do here. But the impacts of climate change are going to impact the visitor experience. And so many of them are kind of happening behind the scenes, like ocean acidification is a huge one. Um, I've been on a few meetings where they're saying that the the ocean acidification that's being recorded off the Oregon coast is some of the worst in the world. Um, and it's affecting also like our Dungeness crab seasons. It's affecting the oysters, like you said. And I'm really interested um, later in this conversation to see how it may be impacting seaweed or, or how seaweed's impacting it. So um, yeah, I'd love to just get right into, into the topics here, but, um, I'm going to pass it over to Jane who loves talking about the food scene, um, especially in new destinations. <laughs> so yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, uh, before we move on to, to the food scene, uh, I, do you think that you could describe to me what exactly ocean acidification is? I'm not that familiar with it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for asking. Ocean acidification is essentially the effect of our oceans absorbing carbon. So our uh, our oceans are a carbon sink, just like you think of, you know, a forest and trees taking CO2 out of our atmosphere. Oceans are doing the same thing, and that's um, mainly through different seaweeds. But our oceans absorb CO2, and with an excess amount of CO2 in our atmosphere, you know, that's being absorbed into the oceans at a faster rate. And there's a whole lot of chemistry involved, but all of that CO2 being absorbed into the oceans is actually making our oceans more acidic. So um, that has a huge effect on shellfish just because their shells can't form. Shells are typically made of like calcium carbonate and that can't form as well under acidic conditions. Um, It has huge effects on larval species of almost any animal, I believe, in the ocean. And there's a ton of effects that we haven't even started looking into yet. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, this is definitely something that probably has been affecting uh, the local food products, whether it's like you mentioned, oyster, local oysters, fish, crab. Um, Maybe it has been uh, affecting this over the last years, but maybe more recently with new knowledge, uh, people are are realizing the effects of it. Um, In general, um, what kind of, of local fish do you guys have in, in Garibaldi as a tourist? If I go there, what kind of local delicacies can I, can I enjoy there? You know, that's a good question. I think the fish specifically, um, day boats and overnight boats actually go out to sea to get, um, to catch most of the fish that they're selling on the docks. Garibaldi is located on Tillamook Bay, which is an extremely large bay with, I think, like four or five uh, freshwater sources. But there's a lot of clamming that goes on in Garibaldi. So there's like commercial clam divers that are out there all the time. 
digging for clams and you can buy those on the docks as well. Um, but the yeah, the local food scene of Garibaldi to me kind of is that fresh local seafood that you can buy right off the docks. They have like shop the dock events pretty frequently where you can just go and specifically or yeah, you can go like buy your seafood directly from the fishermen who are catching it. Um, so to me, yeah, that local seed food food scene is really just the array of seafood that we have available on the coastline. You think of, you know, salmon and tuna, and those are all being sold in Garibaldi, but really they're caught further offshore. It's interesting, the the Shop the Dock program. Um, I know that at least, you know, a couple of years ago, I don't really know what it looks like now with COVID, but a big part of that Shop the Dock program was teaching visitors and even locals how to shop the dock. <laughs> And I was like, that is so spot on. Um, you know, Alana, you said you grew up here. I grew up here. I would have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say I would have no idea, you know, how you, you know, approach like this fishermen, which, you know, they're, they're tough people, they're working people and, you know, and try to do barter with them. Can you go up to their boat? Um, so this is a really cool program where you're kind of giving people the tools um, so that they feel confident in going and, and buying you know, the seafood directly from, from the fishermen. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I guess the next step would be maybe incorporated into cooked options. So you can maybe buy it and then go find somewhere that you can actually cook it and eat it. Um, which would be really cool as well. Um, would you say that the traditional, I mean, I guess you have probably traditional fishing practices, commercial fishing practices, um, how many of those are focused on sustainability nowadays? I think the Oregon coast does a pretty phenomenal job of being as sustainable as possible, but I, I also think it's always really hard to say what actually goes on out at sea. There's, you know, a ton of people that work their lives to determine what is sustainable and what isn't and what methods are sustainable and which ones aren't. Um, and I think our coastline you know, even Washington and California do a really good job of limiting what you can catch and making it as sustainable as possible. But yeah, it's always hard to say. And I'm not like super, I'm not into the fisheries scene. I've never really worked on fishing boats. So I don't have the, you know, most close up perspective of that. But learning about it, I feel like Oregon does a pretty good job. Yeah, I think another cool thing we have, um, including in Garibaldi on the North Coast, is this this tourism product called the North Coast Food Trail. And so that's really the business side of it. You could you can look at this map and see which businesses are using local seafood, but also beef and dairy and, and you know local products. Um, and so I think that's another cool thing that we have going on. And I'm pretty sure there are some businesses in Garibaldi that are on that um, food trail as well. So that's just another way for visitors to be like, hey, I want to, you know, go to this, to this local, to this place that has local food. And um, actually to ask you, Jane, you know, if, would you consider a restaurant that is supplying, you know, their customers local food? Is that the same thing as being a sustainable restaurant? Um, again, sustainable is a tricky question. But I think that if you are supplying local, then by design, you are uh, pretty sustainable. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good bet too. Um, well, great. I think we've really set the scene. Um, you know, we've heard a little bit about what kind of species and food you can get in Garibaldi. A little bit about the Oregon coast, but now let's jump in, Alana, and actually talk about um, Oregon seaweed and Oregon doles specifically. So. Can you describe to us what um, the seaweed that you are farming day in and day out, what does it look like? What color is it? What does it feel like? And especially, what does it taste like? Yes, I think our seaweed is pretty beautiful. So oftentimes when people think of seaweed farming, if they have, you know, any knowledge into it, a lot of seaweed farms focus on kelp. Um, kelp is what washes up on our beaches a lot. So it's that big, long, like greenish brown stuff that looks almost like ropes everywhere. Our seaweed is totally different. We grow a red seaweed, so it is literally bright red. Um, it is native to our coastline, so you can find it on beaches every once in a while, but it grows in these small, frilly little clumps. 
Um, I describe it as like a wet kale. So you know how kale is like fluffy and it has a lot of texture to it. That's kind of how our dulse is, but obviously coming out of the water, it has a lot more moisture to it. Um, raw, it tastes like a salty carrot. It <laughs> is pretty crunchy. It has like a toothiness to it um, and holds in a lot of the salt water that it grows in. So it is super salty. A lot of people just love eating it raw. I think that salt, especially to children, is what I learned at farmer's markets. They will just snack on it straight out of the bag as a raw seaweed. Um, when you cook it, it changes what it, you know, it changes what it looks like. It changes what it tastes like 100%. So the second you put it in a pan and it hits heat, it actually turns green and cooks down kind of like spinach. So it'll wilt down, um, but it pulls out this really smoky, savory flavor. It's got a lot of umami to it and it's super versatile to me. So, you know, you can throw it in a stir fry just like you do with kale, but it adds that saltiness. It adds a really good texture. Um, I think you can put it in almost anything, but yeah, you know, it's a beautiful red algae that turns green the second you cook it, which also just makes it kind of fun. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea that it changed, um, changed color. I feel like that's like shrimp and crab, when you cook it, turns the opposite, you know, turns pink and red. So <laughs> that's cool. It does kind of the opposite of that. Yeah, it gets more red. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the story of how Oregon seaweed, how this product came to be and and why someone created this? Yeah, absolutely. So dulse specifically, you know, it is native here. So by design, it was you know, created by nature, but it was being studied at Hatfield Marine Science Center um, out of Oregon State University. So that's based down in Newport. And Chuck Toombs was really the one who saw this being studied. He was working at Oregon State as a marketing professor, and he saw it being studied and really like saw the true potential behind it to be put on the market for human consumption. It wasn't really out on the market very much. There's a few other dulse farms, but not really large scale and um, nationwide. So he saw the true potential and saw that there was no market for it yet. And he teamed up with Jason Bush, who those are the two founders of the farm. Um, and Jason Bush like single-handedly built the farms that we have. So we have one farm down in Bandon, Oregon, which is 10 tanks. And we have another farm up in Garibaldi that's 20 tanks. So they just doubled the size. But the two of them got together, really saw the potential behind Dulce and created Oregon Seaweed about five years ago. And it's just kind of expanding since 2015. So that is that is so interesting. If I understand correctly, Chuck was a marketing professor, not necessarily a scientific background. Yeah, correct. Oh, bingo. <laughs> that is super interesting. And I just want to call that out actually, as we tie this back into tourism, is that a lot of times we have this, sorry to sidetrack this, but a lot of times we have this debate about, um, you know, what's better marketing or management, right? They say like, we don't need to market destinations anymore. A lot of times marketing kind of gets put on the back burner as not being as important as managing a destination. And of course, the right answer is we need both of those things. But it's so interesting because marketing is this world of storytelling and potential. And so it's so interesting to me that, you know, Chuck's background is actually in marketing and he saw the potential of a story and a product in, in this Oregon Dole. So that is super cool. Yeah, I think so too. And I think as, you know, a marketer, you learn how to connect and network and you just learn a lot in that community. So I think that's really how Chuck has done it. Um, so I think you started mentioning some, you know, you said you had 10 tanks in Bandon, 20 tanks in Garibaldi. Um, can you sort of describe what this looks like? Like, can you describe your office for us um, that may not be as familiar with what a, a seaweed farm looks like? Yeah, I think I have the most beautiful office in the world. But we are actually, so we're a land-based seaweed farm. We um, have tanks just lining the shores of Tillamook Bay. So these are like 1500 gallon tanks, you know, so they go up to your chest. They're pretty large. Um, and they're just lined up right along Tillamook Bay. And out along the pier, we have piping that shoots down into the water. And every day at high tide, so we have two high tides a day, that water is pumped up through our pipes along the pier and gets 
like flows into all of our tanks. Um, there's also some like air blowers that just blast air through the tanks as well. So the tanks are these like tumbling water systems. So when you walk up to them, it's not just like a still tank of water. There's quite a bit of movement that's going on in it. Um, so you can hear that water flow. You look out on Tillamook Bay, you have the mountains in front of you. It's a really, really beautiful scene. And it's right on the port of Garibaldi. So we have some oyster farmers next to us and the Garibaldi, the Garibaldi Cannery right behind us. So there's a whole lot of different operations all around us that have to do with seafood. And it's just a pretty cool place to be in that community. Yeah, thanks for describing that. Um, it's something I think people aren't often familiar with. And I know that you work on the farming side of things. So you may not be able to answer this kind of question. But when I think of water being pumped out of the ocean and being in a port, like that seems very technical to me and probably requires a lot of permitting and licensing and um is it was it difficult to set up um the the Garibaldi sort of farm up there or is it something that policymakers and local government were super supportive of and waived all the the red tape you know it's a good question and yeah I don't really know the specifics of all the permitting um Jason Jason has worked in like environmental law type deals for a very long time so he he knows how to go through all those processes. And um, it sounded like it wasn't actually that difficult. I think because it's salt water, it's not like we're not using any fresh water. You know, we're not taking fresh water out of a lake. And I think that's what <clears throat> we're more focused on protecting. Not that we're not protecting our salt water, but um, we're also just putting it back into the bay. So we're not like actively removing water from the bay and keeping it. But I think the permitting was not that bad. What I'm, I've been interested to learn about is that in California, there's much stricter permitting and it's made it really hard for seaweed farms to actually begin. And I don't know why that is. I don't know the details, but just working with other seaweed farms and talking to other companies, that's what I've discovered, which was kind of interesting to me. Yeah. I think it's always important to to call out, you know, especially when you think of our audience here listening to the show, that we could have policymakers listening in and to see, you know, today as they learn this story about the importance of this type of seaweed, understanding that there's probably a big part of it is actually allowing this type of innovative business to operate, you know, in a port or on land or, or wherever else they're starting up. So um, always like to call that out. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, so we've heard a lot of positive attributes um, of growing and eating this product. So can you share some of those with us? Um, you know, what, what, why is this good for you as a consumer to eat? How is this good for the environment? How is this good for a menu? Um, can you describe some of the, the selling points? Maybe uh, what you tell people at farmer's markets? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many positives that we're learning really more and more of them every day, um, just in terms of growing it. And this was what I knew before even coming into this position um, and what I've learned about for years. But the growth benefits are major. It is on its own. It's a carbon negative product. It's a carbon negative vegetable, which I think is hard for people to wrap their heads around. But, you know, just like trees, seaweed is absorbing CO2 out of our atmospheres. It's absorbing carbon. And with no fresh water and no pesticides being added into it, no like boat fuel that we have to use. The net carbon that it's, it's, <laughs> we're removing carbon out of the atmosphere, you know, so we're not inputting anything, we're not using any fuels. Um, it's absorbing essentially more carbon than any other vegetable that's being grown on the planet. Um, and it does that at a really efficient rate. So because of how fast seaweed grows, it's just absorbing more carbon than, you know, than your kale operation would be absorbing. Um, it takes up a very little amount of space. So it's vertical growth, you know, in our really large, tall tanks, there's seaweed growing at every level of it. For ocean-based farms, it's the same way, like your seaweed can grow down to the depth of whatever bay or waterway you're in. So the amount of space that it takes up is pretty low compared to a lot of other land-based agriculture. Um, it's creating new jobs for coastal communities, which I think is just pretty incredible. And then nutritionally, so your benefits of eating it, it is by far one of the healthiest foods on the market. I really didn't even know this when I started eating seaweed. And I feel like every day I read a new article about something they've discovered about seaweed and why it's good for you to eat. 
but it is more nutritious than kale. Um, Dulse specifically is a complete protein and has, yeah, so it has all the amino acids you need to survive plus the protein, making it a complete protein. Um, I believe it has about twice as much protein as kale or as soy, sorry. Um, And along with that, you're getting all these other nutrients that it's absorbing from the ocean. So it's a really good source of iodine, which I think a lot of people lack in their diets. Um, Really good source of potassium and fiber and you get omega-3s. I think that tidbit right there about omega-3s is one that at farmer's markets often blew people away. But when you think about it, you know, people often link omega-3s just to eating fish and that they need to be eating fish to get their omega-3 fatty acids. But in the grand scheme of things, fish do not create omega-3 fatty acids. They're getting those by eating seaweeds. So by us eating seaweed, you're getting the direct source of omega-3 fatty acids. Um, And it's, I just read an article recently about how dulse, and it was about Atlantic dulse, so I don't know if it varies that much, but Dulse is known to pull heavy metals from your body. So it's really good for that. Um, It adds great flavor and texture to anything you put it in. So it just sounds like a win-win-win situation all around. Absolutely. I think that that you make a really, really good case (laughs) for Dulse seaweed. And I'm just curious because before... Um, before doing this podcast with you, I have to admit I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I, you know, I, I'm into new food products. I'm into eating healthy. Um, and I had never heard of it actually. So I'm, I'm curious to hear from your experience, how have people reacted to it? Maybe when you were first starting, have you seen a shift in behavior or popularity? Uh, how are consumers, uh, you know, interacting with dulce seaweed these days? <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. I I also had not really heard of dulce much just in terms of like being on the Oregon coast. I coincidentally was studying at Hatfield Marine Science Center when dulce was being studied and all these press releases came out about it. So I had heard of it as this bacon seaweed and that was what blew my mind, but I didn't really even know it was native or that I could be finding it in intertidal zones around here. Um, And I think that's pretty, yeah, that's like very similar for a lot of other people. So I didn't realize how helpful working at farmer's markets would be all summer for Oregon seaweed, but it really set the scene to me on what people know, what people don't know, and what education we need out there. Um, So, you know, people know, the general public in our country know about eating seaweed, really just in the form of those crispy like nori sheets that now you can sushi yeah, now you can get at Costco or sushi any Asian cuisine really um and you know you think of like seaweed salad or even in ramen they put seaweed but what people don't realize is that those are like mainly those are highly processed a lot of them are dyed like that bright green seaweed salad that you get is normally chemically dyed it does not naturally look like that um and the dried seaweed sheets are completely hit or miss. I personally do not like those. I cannot stand them. Um, I don't think they're good, but I know a lot of people love them. And I discovered that's very common. Like it's 50-50 on if people like them or don't like them. But when you introduce this new seaweed at a farmer's market, we have this tendency to just associate it with what we already know about seaweed. So I say dulce, I say it's seaweed. And sometimes people are like, oh, I don't like seaweed. I don't, I can't stand it. And I have to explain, like, you. I know, you know, you're thinking of these sheets. I don't like those either. But what people don't realize is that there are thousands of different kinds of seaweed. And just like vegetables, if you can't base your like of one on your like of another, right? So if you don't like broccoli, you can't say that you don't like kale as well. Um, and it's the same with seaweed. Every seaweed has a different flavor profile, a different texture even. There's so many different ways to prepare it. So... I think that's been really hard for people to get their heads around that if they don't like the seaweed that they know, there's no chance that they're going to like a new seaweed. I have to say that we bought the seaweed things, like the packets of seaweed, I think at Costco, my partner and I, and I took one bite and was like, nope. (laughs) 
Yep. <laughs> so poor guy, he's like single-handedly <laughs> eating like 30 packets because we're all from cheapskates. But <laughs> so yeah, that's good to know because I'm one of those people that's like, oh, maybe I'm not a seaweed person, but maybe I am, Alana. So um, <laughs> I'm going to come find you. You're- <laughs> <laughs> give it a try, Erica. Give it a try. <laughs> So I'm also curious at these farmers markets, you know, as you just said, they're pretty important for people opening their minds, just basic, like growing awareness of, of what the seaweed is, how it's different. Did you notice any difference between the open-mindedness of uh, the visitors, whether they were uh, local Oregon coast residents or people from other areas? I mean, did you see any, like, was it, was it more interesting for local people? They said, wow, this is what we have in our own backyard. This is amazing. Or was it more interesting for visitors because it was something totally, completely new for them? You know, that's a, another really good question. Um, I think it it really just came down to the individual person, it felt like, because locals just by being here had heard of it, you know, word of mouth or being in different newspapers here on the coast. And from that, they were really intrigued. So often people would come up and be like, oh, I've read about this. Like, can you explain it to me? And just being able to have a face-to-face conversation with somebody about a new product, I think is super valuable. Um, But at the same time, visitors, tourists, specifically, I was working a farmer's market in Cannon Beach, actually, and that's a really touristy destination. I would see new faces every single time. Um, And it was a great place because people came in and even if they didn't have a place to be cooking, they were so excited about the idea of eating this fresh seaweed from the coast that they were on um, that it, even if they didn't know if they would like it, they were at least intrigued to be trying a local food that you could just forage on your own really. Um, So yeah, it was kind of hit or miss. I think locals also like know that they can forage seaweed on the coast and it's not necessarily something you hear about as much as say like clamming or crabbing or going fishing. Like I don't hear about people just going out and collecting seaweed on the rocks all the time. And I think that might be a um, missing link in education. And I think that's, that's like a big background of mine is all in education. So I'm very gung ho about educating the world about all these things. I'm, cu- I'm curious, Alana, in order, you know, I, I know when you, when we go clamming, when we go fishing and crabbing, we have to have a permit from Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Is that the same for foraging for seaweed? Do you need to have um, like a, a license or permit or something? I don't believe you need a permit, but you, there are seasons and I forget what the month is, but it, it cuts off. I want to say in like May or June, you can't collect seaweeds anymore up until the next year. And I haven't actually looked into why that is. There's got to be a reason that that season exists. Um, So there's more of a seasonality than there is like permitting. Interesting. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. And so based on this, you know, okay, so people come to the farmer's market, they see the seaweed, they talk with you, they learn about the seaweed, they try some of the seaweed. And so there's definitely an interest, right? To, To learn more about it, to explore it. Do you think that, I mean, do you think that there's a market for seaweed experiences? Like, can you go with a guide or could someone go with you or someone from your company and learn how to forge seaweed? <laughs> so it's really funny that you asked me that because I'm actually this next spring and summer, I am working, this is like outside of Oregon seaweed altogether. This is through another studio, but I am leading workshops about coastal foraging. Um, yeah. And it fits in with my background. You know, I, I have always taught Well, I've worked in Cannon Beach at Haystack Rock for the past nine years on and off, just educating people about the inner tidal and the animals there and conservation and how we can protect it. Um, But I'm moving into the direction of now, like teaching people how to forage our coastline as well in a sustainable way. So yeah, in like March, April and May, I'll be taking people on day trips just to intertidal zones to teach them what they can forage, how to forage it, when to forage it all those sorts of things. And, you know, it focuses a lot on mussels and other intertidal animals, but it will definitely have a heavy focus on seaweeds. I love that. I'm excited to hear that too, because I think when we look at um, destination management again, which is what I just love, um, we see that in a lot of spots, like like spots that you've named, Cannon Beach, Seaside, even Garibaldi, 
are highly visited locations that are seeing a lot of negative impacts from tourism. So that could be a lot of day traffic or maybe not enough trash cans for the amount of trash, you know, there's these impacts. And so I think sometimes people get nervous when you're like, oh, we're going to show, you know, visitors, we're going to tell visitors where they should go clamming or they should go crabbing because there's always this, they don't know how to do it properly. So they're going to, you know, risk public safety or they're going to damage the environment. But within the tourism industry on the Oregon coast and in Oregon in general, we really push people to use guides. So like going on a tour with yourself, because then people learn, oh, this is the season that I need to do this. This is the way that I have to do. This is the permit I need, or this is the, you know, the proper way, the sustainable way of doing it. So I think that having people like you, Alana, that show visitors the right way to do things and the why on how we do things um, is so crucial in managing our destination sustainably. So I'm excited to hear you'll be doing that. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's just, again, so much to that face-to-face contact and being with somebody, um, hearing about it, like, straight from, instead of reading about it, it's so hard for me to, like, read a bunch of information and immediately understand what it is and why it is. But when you can have a conversation and ask questions, it's just super beneficial to everybody. And do you think that beyond the the educational part and actual learning and going and, and foraging it, do you think there's potential to combine other types of tourism? Like, I don't know, collaborating with a local chef. So you go and you forage for the seaweed and for the mussels, and then you head back, maybe pass by the farmer's market, buy a couple more ingredients, and then go to a local restaurant and prepare a dish. Do you see, do you see a market for combining, you know, the educational piece of you know, seaweed foraging, mussel muscle foraging, and more of this culinary tourism experience? Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm doing like small cooking demos in my foraging workshops just because I think it is really beneficial um, and gives people ways to actually know how to prepare their food. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that exists. I think there would definitely be a market for it. Cannon Beach does actually have a culinary school Um, right in town. And I'm working with them next year to just get seaweed on their menu. And I think he'll be like teaching people how to cook with seaweeds, but it doesn't have the foraging aspect. So yeah, there is a disconnect in those two avenues on our coast right now, but I think combining them could be, that could be a huge new business for somebody really. (laughs) It'll be interesting too. Um, You know, it's been a couple of years since I was a part of this, but on the Oregon coast, we have seven counties, which of course have their own, you know, local government and their own rules and regulations. And I believe it's Tillamook, um, which is where Garibaldi is, has very strict rules about um, like foraging and then cooking it. So I've talked to restaurants that are like, hey, we have people going out in dory boats in the ocean catching fish, but they legally cannot prepare that food for them when they get back. Um, there's like all this like zoning and like food handler, like permitting processes that there was so much red tape when we were talking about this a couple of years ago, um, that that'll be interesting to see if, if, if seaweed falls under that because it's not a fish, um, you know, maybe there's less chance of somebody getting sick or something if it's not prepared properly. Um, but again, seeing how local government will support or slow down these like innovative, you know collaborations and ideas. So keep me in the loop, Alana. Let's see. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't heard anything about that, actually. That's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, it'll depend by county and by, um, by the rules. So are there currently um, some restaurants that are integrating um, seaweed into their um, menus? Yeah, it's been really great. We actually we work with one restaurant that is pretty close to Garibaldi. It's about 20 minutes north in a town called Wheeler and it's called the Salmonberry. It's right on the waterfront, super beautiful location, but they incorporate it in so many different ways. So, you know, simply their chef uses it in a lot of their dishes. They have like a they're they're heavily focused on, well, it's kind of Italian style. So, they have a lot of fresh, delicious pastas and they have a bucatini dish that has local clams and our seaweed in like a white wine sauce. And they're hyper local. So everything comes from our coastline. They can tell you exactly what farmer grew the vegetable or caught the food, where they caught it. They know everything about where their food comes from. 
Um, so they just use it on their menu. But then also we were working farmers markets together this summer and they make a ton of like value added products that um, you can just take home and prepare food yourself with, you know. So she was the owner was making a cultured dulce and chanterelle butter and she made a pasta noodle with the dulce dried and like ground up into the noodles. So it's a bucatini noodle and it has little specks of seaweed in it. Um, she made some salad dressings with it, but there's all these different ways that it can be used and put into products that people are already familiar with and that they know and they love. And it gives it this avenue that's like not as scary as just taking a bag of fresh seaweed home and cooking it yourself. Um, but it's, it's just been really amazing to see what, what chefs and what business owners have been able to create with it. I love the excitement and innovation already stemming from from you guys farming this on the coast. I mean, I know that it's, let's say, more or less a new, as you said, it's native to the Oregon coast, but it's new to be farmed and sold as a product there. Um, do you think that dulce seaweed could in the future become sort of like a brand staple for the Oregon coast? You know, it, it in a way, it's a product that is 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 telling the story maybe a, a sustainable to uh, sustainable tourism or sustainable development story of the Oregon coast do you think that dulce seaweed could be a, a reason why people come and and visit that part of the coast I do think so we've had a huge interest just in our operation alone but I think you know I think of it like oysters you go to a coast and Every 20 minutes, you can hit a town that has a different oyster that's specific to that bay, to that region. And I think seaweed is the same way. Like our Garibaldi farm and our Bandon farm, yeah, we're growing the same seaweed, but the ocean conditions are totally different. You have different nutrients coming into the bays. So even in those two destinations, like our seaweed varies in its flavor profile. Um, it looks pretty similar, but and I can't pick up flavors that well, honestly, but I'm sure a good chef could tell you how the flavors vary. Um, and I think that's huge. I think down the coast, you know, if you just had all these small seaweed farms that had either the same seaweed or different variations or species of seaweed, I think it could definitely pull people out here. Um, and I think it's a huge draw for tourism. I think just having a seaweed farm there for people to see and people to come tour or visit is another way for people to see where their food is coming from. Um, and yeah, behind like the story of seaweed, I think just it tells a huge story. We right now have a, a brewery down in Coos Bay and they're called Seven Devils Brewing and they're making a beer with our dulce in it. But the whole background of that beer actually stems back to sea otters. So they're, it's an alaka ale and alaka means sea otter in the native language. And it, um, it's like telling this story and raising money to bring these sea otters back to the Oregon coast. But sea otters are so tied into seaweed in the environment that they're putting seaweed in the beer to help tell the story. So it's, you know, just this full circle story, like you're saying, that involves seaweed and involves people on the coast doing all these cool things, too. The Oregon coast is just the best. We're just the best. <laughs> Just like incredible, you know, this interconnectivity that we have along such a large region. Um, the Laka Alliance is something I definitely recommend people check out. They're doing incredible work. Um, there's a lot of um, of our tribes that are backing that. Uh, there hasn't been a sea otter on the Oregon coast for over 100 years. That's when the last one was killed. That being said, Alana, did you see there was a sea otter? A couple of days ago in Newport, yes, I did. Yes. And I guess he's Yay. a lonely guy. Yeah, I was gonna say he's a bachelor, so they don't think you'll hang out for very long without the ladies. But there is this incredible work being done on the coast. There's this regenerative projects going on everywhere, and so I think you know, Jane, when you're asking uh, Alana if you think Oregon seaweed could help position Garibaldi or the Oregon coast really as a climate conscious destination, I would also answer yes. And as an organization, you know, we have declared a climate emergency for tourism like six months ago. And so it's been really interesting looking at all of these different businesses and communities that are already working in this space um, to the north of Garibaldi and Astoria, um, Bowie Beer. 
is capturing their own carbon. Um, you know, Oregon seaweed is creating this carbon negative vegetable. And I think that we could start creating these itineraries for visitors that want to be a sustainable visitor and say, you know, when you're here, you can stay at this sustainable hotel. You can eat this seaweed. You can drink this beer um, that's supporting sea otters or taking carbon out of the air. Um, I think that these are the types of products that will be really interesting in creating us as this climate conscious destination. So we're so stoked, Alana, <laughs> that you that you all are doing the work that you're doing. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty stoked as well. <laughs> it's a cool place to be. Yeah, I'm curious as we start wrapping up here, um, in your opinion, you know, as the farmer and as the as the community outreach and education person, what do you think that your company needs in order to be successful moving forward? Um, really, I think it's just, you know, for people to continue diving into these different avenues of um, helping our environment, changing the way that we look at the environment, changing the way that maybe we eat, like the idea of climate cuisines and trying these new foods that will be good in the long run for not only you, but for our planet, um, keeping an open mind to that. And as well as like continuing to dive into the potential that these products have. So seaweed just in the past, like five to 10 years, it's come out that seaweed is good for so many things, not just food. There's, you know, bioplastics right now being made out of seaweeds there that are completely compostable, like in your backyard, there was recently a study done that if you feed cattle or if you supplement cows' diets with seaweed, like something like 2%, a very small amount, it actually cuts their methane by up to like 82%. So obviously it took one person to have this thought of doing this research to dive into the potentials behind it. And I think the more that people just keep their minds open to the directions that we can move either with seaweed or with other environmental products like it's it's huge but trying seaweeds in a different way obviously is a huge thing it's not something that everyone's gonna like i don't expect everyone that tastes it to love it it's just like another vegetable a lot of people might not actually like it but being open-minded to that there's other ways of preparing it different ways to be using it or adding it into your diet or your life somehow um and yeah just keeping that open mind yeah, well, thank you so much, Alana, for joining us today to talk about Oregon Dulce Seaweed um, with two farms, one up in Garibaldi and one down in Bandon here on the Oregon coast. Um, it's been incredible to talk about the benefits of this carbon negative vegetable to our planet and to our communities, to visitors and to our own health. Um, and so, yeah, I think you guys are really leading the way and I'm glad that we could have this story on the tasty solution here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you so much. <laughs>